This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to Bear Archery's Hunting 101 podcast, where hunters new and old come to learn and find inspiration from stories of hunts gone by. Everyone is welcome to enjoy the outdoor way of life, and there is no better time to start than right now. So let's head into the great outdoors with your host, Dylan Ray. Welcome to Bear Archery's Hunting 101 podcast, as always, presented by our good friends over at Scentlock. One thing I'm incredibly excited about this year coming from Scentlock is their Blackout Series. Um, so if you hunt from a blind, that Blackout Series is going to be phenomenal. Um, whether you're in a tower blind or in a pop-up blind, uh, wearing black really helps you blend into the back of that blind. So if you're a blind hunter, I would highly, highly encourage you to check out the Blackout Series uh, from Scentlock. I've got a special guest on the phone, Mr. Warren Holder. Warren, how are you, man? I'm doing great, my friend. How are you? Oh, you know, uh, seasons are kicking off, so I'm doing good. Yeah, me and you both. I'm ready. Have you started whitetail hunting yet? No, we have. Well, and so this year, we've just been so busy this year. I didn't actually get to go and do as many Western hunts as usual. I went out to Wyoming and chased antelope, and then... uh, my dad's been in New Mexico with the Primos boys for the last, oh, he's probably been there six or seven days now. So we still have till the first before we get it. Our youth season started on Saturday. But other than that, um, I got another, got to wait till October 1. It opened here in Kansas eight days ago, but all of these eight days, it's been 96 to 102. So I'm like, I'm not going to sit in the woods when it it's 100 even, degrees. It doesn't even feel right when it's that hot. It doesn't. It doesn't. Man, and, and I tell everybody, and we, we went over this um, in some of the past episodes, so I don't want to dive too far into it, but if you don't want to be up and moving around, the deer don't either. Like, if it's too hot for you to want to go out, the deer don't want to be roaming around either. So you're, you're just boogering stuff up by doing it, in my opinion. Yeah, it just doesn't even... It, it takes part of the fun out of it for me. Absolutely. You know? 100%. Uh, 100%. Like, I'd like there's a difference, you know, between 65 where it's like starting to cool down, you know, and you can feel the fall air and when it's still like 85 and humid, that just, yeah, I'm like, ah, I'm not, I'd probably will still go, but I'm not all that excited when it's like that. Well, today it's like 96 and humid. So it's even worse. I think it's, I think today is supposed to be like our last 90 degree day and I think it's supposed to cool off. So I'm pretty excited about that. Well, that's good for you. I wish it was the yeah, same here. <laughs> Yeah, I do too, because your season's at least open. Yeah, I wouldn't really care until October 1. After that, I'm like, okay, cool off for me, please. Right. No, man, it's, yeah, it's rough uh, when it's this hot. But one of the biggest deer I've shot to date, it was like 90 degrees, so. Really? Too much, yeah. Was that uh, in Kansas? No, that was actually in Arkansas. Um, Okay. Well, those deer have to move when it's 90, because it's that way all the time, right? (laughs) Well, and it was kind of a, I don't want to say a fluke deal, but, you know, it was one of those, one of those situations where, um, well, I'll just, I, I knew this guy, I knew him well, he owned this, this auction lot and behind the auction lot, he had a, a cornfield. And so it was right off the highway. So everybody saw these massive deer out in this cornfield all the time for years, but he didn't let anybody hunt. 
um, because it was just going to be a, a fight. You know, it was just going to be, well, why do you let him hunt? Not me. I asked you first. Um, I work for you, you know, whatever. Um, and so it was just one of those deals where everybody knew like there's massive deer right here, city deer right off the highway with a massive cornfield all to themselves. And like I, I had asked him several times throughout my life and he always said, no. Well, I went to college in my first year in college. I was like, well, I'm headed back to hunt. I really need somewhere good to hunt. And so I called Mr. Mike and I said, Hey Mike, uh, listen, dude, um, I'm coming back from college and I really want to hunt somewhere good. Could I hunt that cornfield? And he said, you know, I, I guess I'd let you. And I'm like, like, I freaked out. I'm like, what? Like, I wasn't expecting this. So I called my dad. I'm like, dude, you'll never guess who gave me permission to hunt this weekend. And he's like, who? And I said, Mr. Mike, he said on my way. And he went down and hung up stands and like had everything ready. Cause I only had the weekend to come in and hunt and, and so it was one of those deals where it was like the best situation you could ever find yourself in because it had never been hunted, you know, city deer. I mean, one of those deals. So yeah, but no, it was uh 90 degrees and ended up shooting, shooting a giant. So was it early or like, Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Already into the, yeah. It was, it was way sometimes, you know, that if you're in the real early season, I know like, like for instance, out in Montana, you know, all those deer are going to the alfalfa fields and the season opens September 1. And if you're now, nobody is usually hunting whitetails in Montana on September 1. They're all hunting elk or mule deer. But if you are a diehard whitetail guy, you can have those deer patterned, you know, yeah. extremely well. And weather doesn't necessarily make that big of a difference as yeah. long as it's not like maybe, um, you know, serious thunderstorm or crazy winds or something. The chances of that buck doing that, you know, at least one time in the next two or three days is really, really good. So I don't think right. it makes as much of a difference, you know, in the early season when they're still in their early season patterns as it does, you know, when we start getting into October, late September, October, um, you know, then I think it really start makes a impact on the deer movement. Yeah, I would agree. Well, um, so if you've been following along, we are in our Deer 101 series. Um, it's been incredibly encouraging to hear from people. I've already gotten a couple emails. Uh, one guy emailed and said, hey, man. Uh, I'm just starting deer hunting and thanks to your deer one-on-one series. Um, I feel prepared and just really encouraging. So I hope you followed along. If not, um, this is near the end and we're talking about the actual, um, deer in front of you. First, we're going to talk about shot placement. Then we're going to talk about everything after the shot. Um, so here's what I found, Warren. It's incredibly intimidating for a new hunter. They've put in all this time and work into how to find the deer and to how to hunt the deer they've gotten lucky enough to have harvested a deer and then it becomes like oh crap i didn't look into anything after this like i don't know how to skin this thing i don't know how to how to fill dress it i don't know i don't know what to do with this thing um because they've put so much time and effort into the process to get one on the ground that it's been kind of you know i didn't have time to look into this um maybe maybe they didn't think they would get lucky enough to have one maybe uh, you know, they just didn't have enough time to put into it. I don't know, but it can become incredibly overwhelming when you, when you stand over the deer for the first time and you're like, what do I do? Um, I don't, I don't, I don't know how to handle this. Um, so let me just reference this. Me and Warren don't have a deer here. Um, uh, maybe he does. I don't know. He's a better hunter than I, um, we don't have a deer here to show you the field dressing process. Um, so I would highly encourage you. Um, we're going to talk about those types of things, but it's one thing to talk about it and listen to it. It's another thing to see it. Um, so I would highly encourage you to, uh, Google how to field dress a whitetail, how to skin out a whitetail, how to cape out a whitetail, if that's what you're going to do. Um, how to, you know, if you need to quarter it out, how to quarter out a whitetail, I would highly encourage you to Google those types of videos and watch those types of videos. Um, because we're going to talk about it. Um, but again, it can be kind of hard to wrap your mind around even at, even when we're talking about it. So, um, Let's jump into, um, hold on. My, my phone is, we have a couple really good, uh, really good videos too, on our YouTube channel. Just look up raised hunting and field dressing. We've done okay. a couple videos that go over pretty in depth, uh, you know, how to field dress. So that might be helpful for some people as well. Yeah, absolutely. I will put a link to those in the description of this episode. Um, so that way, if you want to watch those videos, um, uh, because I'm also a big preacher of watch videos of people that we know we can trust. Um, there's guys out there who put out videos on field dressing an animal and it's their first time to do it. And they're making a video of it. So, um, I would highly encourage you to, um, watch people who are trustworthy before we jump in though, 
you guys just launched a scent company um, or a, a, a scent arm of your company. Um, tell me about those, man. We did. We're pretty, we're super excited about it. And obviously everybody else is too, because we've been, um, we're having a hard time keeping them in stock. So what we've done is we've went and we are now selling glandular scents. So, um, you know, once you start to learn more about whitetails and you start paying attention to their behavior and you started paying attention to what they do, the way that whitetails communicate, they don't go up to each other like you and I, right? They, I don't, I, you don't ever see a deer go, oh, hey, Dylan, in the bean field, right? That's not how right. whitetails communicate. The way that whitetails communicate, and it's not even really vocal. You'll, sure, you'll hear a buck grunt or snort wheeze, um, you know, during the rut, but and then maybe a fawn ball. But for the most part, 95% of their communication is all through their glands. So deer have several glands. You know, you have your uh, forehead gland, salivary gland, interdigital gland, metatarsal gland, preorbital gland, and they utilize those glands to communicate with one another. And so what we've done is we've taken those glands. If you've ever found a scrape or a rub, I didn't know this until we, you know, really started diving into the science when we decided that we felt as though we tested some of these, like, you know, took some glands from deer and tested them on scrapes and rubs and had incredible results. And so after that, I started looking more into, we all did, I'd say my, all of us, myself, my dad, my brother, we started looking more into the science of it. For instance, a rub to me, I'd always thought that the reason that a deer rubbed a tree was just cause he was like fired up. Right. You know, like he's just like, oh yeah, man, it's almost the time to breed. And so I'm just going to go and I'm going to wreck this tree. <laughs> to me, that was why a deer rubbed a tree. I didn't really think there was right. much more to that. Um, well, it turns out that that's actually what he's doing most of the time is they're just communicating with other bucks. They're marking their territory. That right. forehead gland is actually what they're rubbing on there. And, and I didn't believe that either until I went and looked at trail camera videos we had of these bucks rubbing trees. And every single time you can watch them, they'll walk up to it, they'll sniff it, then they rub it. And they're rubbing their forehead more than their antlers by far. You know, you don't, you very rarely see a deer where he's taking his G2s and threes and rubbing it on the tree. He's always right. rubbing right here at the base. What he's doing is he's putting that forehead oil on there. Yeah. So, or for instance, let's just take a deer. Do you know why a deer stops? Do you Let's say stomps just, or stops? Yep. Stomps when they're alarmed. Um, putting out a scent from the, from the, isn't there a gland in the bottom of the foot they're putting a scent out from? Yes, absolutely. So there you go, guys. Dylan's a good source. He knows what he's talking about. That's their interdigital gland. Also a great way to train a dog because as they're running after a shot, a dog can really get on that scent. So if you get that gland off of a, a dead deer, it's a really good way to train a dog to, to find dead deer. Yeah. So is what that is, is that's the interdigital gland. And, and so if you've ever had a deer walk out into a field and a doe busts you or something, and she sits there and stops forever, and then she runs off. And an hour later, you have another deer walk right by that same place. Doesn't see you, doesn't smell you, doesn't do anything. And she freaks out all of a sudden, you know, I've before been like, what the heck it, how did that deer know that? Well, that's what it is. She's smelling all of that interdigital gland of that other deer telling her, Hey, there's, a, there's danger here you know, be cautious. So is what we've done is we've harnessed the power of those glands and we've put them in bottles where people can be able to utilize them themselves. So when you go and you make a scrape, you know, something that we've been saying is make your mock scrapes real. And the reason that we say that is because when we go and we make a scrape, you know, all of our scents are hundred percent authentic. They come from deer. There's no urine base. So urine, urine can be helpful to an extent when you get closer to the rut. Um, in estrus, but urine doesn't actually have any kind of communication mode to it. Um, it may be something that, that carries a little bit of information when you're close to the rut and when they're in estrus. But other than that, it's, um, urine doesn't do anything in a scrape. The only thing that urine does the same reason you hear lots of guys, you know, they go and they pee in a scrape and like, well, that I, I peed in the scrape and then I had, you know, 10 bucks hit it. Well, is what you're doing there is moisture is the most important thing in a scrape. You're wetting their scents. Exactly. Moisture holds the scent. So when you piss in it, you're reactivating right. the scent of all of the deer. So if you've ever tried to make a mock scrape purely from a mock scrape in your own urine, you probably didn't have very good results. Or if you did, you probably got fairly lucky in the fact that it was somewhere that a deer was most likely going to start a scrape anyways, because they really don't, the visual portion doesn't have much effect on a deer. 
they don't really look at a scrape and say, oh, this is a big scrape, right? right? They're smelling it. They're, they're using their, their nose. So that's what we've done is we've taken, you know, real scents from real deer and, and put those glands in to these blends that we have found that have worked really, really well. And now we're making them available to the public. And it, so far, the support that people have offered has been unbelievable. And we've had lots of people that, that have got sent us pictures, you know, of, of huge deer that we're super happy for them, but we also can't share them right now, you know, because they're like, let me try and kill him first. And I'm like, yeah. I, I get you 100%. So, yeah, That's so absolutely. we're pretty excited about that. Now, yeah. one thing I would highly encourage the listener, if you just heard all that and and maybe you just dove into the Deer 101 series and you're like, I would highly encourage you. One of the best episodes, in my opinion, we've ever put out. Um, we have Dr. Carl Miller on from the University of Georgia, uh, one of the leading deer biologists in North America. And we talk about tactics for whitetail hunting and not only why they work or not only that they work, but why they work and really diving into what a deer smells and why they're smelling those things and what a deer hears and how a deer hears and what tones they hear and what, you know, it's really, really, really informational. And so everything that Warren just talked about, if it goes over your head and you're like, what is he talking about? I would highly encourage you to jump back two episodes uh, to our, our one-on-one tactics episode. And, uh, and we really dive into why all of these things work. He goes through all of the different glands and what all those glands are communicating to other whitetails and how we can utilize them to better hunt. So I would highly encourage you to check that episode out. Um, but I'm incredibly excited to try out some of, of you guys' scents. So um, that's why I kind of wanted to go over them real quick. Now, you have digested all the episodes up to this point and you have found yourself sitting in front of a deer and you're shaking like a leaf you have no idea what to do everything that you've learned is going out the window and now it's just time to make the shot um so one thing i want to talk about there are if you google shot placement on whitetails there are thousands of things that you're going to come up with um and, and thousands of different um aiming methods and where to shoot and how to shoot why to shoot when to shoot um so we're going to kind of go through all of those sort of things. You found the deer right in front of you. Um, I'm going to pull up a picture here so we can kind of talk about um, if we had a buck in front of us where we would shoot and why. Um, can you see that? Yep. Perfect. Um, I want something without dots or um, this guy here. First off, he's not big enough for me to shoot, so I'd have to pass him, but... Um, just kidding. If you've listened, if you've listened to this podcast at all, you know I don't pass up anything that has horns. Um, all right, Warren, you've got this deer in front of you. Um, first off, how do you know when to draw your bow back? Um, how do you know where to aim, where to shoot? Um, how do you walk through that process? So this is a kind of a loaded question because really I think that a lot of this for new hunters, this is going to be much more difficult than an experienced hunter because there's only three things that I'm paying any attention to when I've decided that this is an animal that I'm going to shoot. This is one that I'm going to try and, and harvest. Number one is their body language. Okay. So that's something that it's going to take experience. It, you know, a really experienced hunter can go out there and they can watch a deer and they can tell if that deer is nervous, if he's alarmed, if he knows something's up or if he's completely calm and content. Um, the reason that I am going to be paying attention to that and those factors is because that could be part of when I draw, if he's, you know, if it's a buck and he, he's following a doe in the middle of the rut and she's in heat, I'm not that concerned about getting caught drawing. The chances that I'm going to get caught drawing is probably pretty slim. As long as, you know, as long as I'm not in a tree where it's super naked and, and out in the open, otherwise is what I'm, the first thing I'm doing is I'm looking for a place to draw, I'm waiting for him to go behind a tree or go behind a bush or to look away. The second thing that I'm doing is I'm, I'm looking at those ranges. So hopefully you guys maybe covered, um, taking the time before you even have a deer come in to range things around you. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, I'm looking, I know, you know, he was 30 when he passed that and he's walked probably five yards closer. Now I'm going to split pins 25. The third thing that I'm doing and the most important thing is I am doing nothing but staring at where I want to hit that animal. And the reason that I believe that this made a huge, huge difference in me, uh, for me when I, and the results I got when I was shooting animals was staring at and just burning a hole. That's what I call it. Burning a hole 
where I wanted to hit that annual. Because what I believe happens is when you do that, when you come to full draw, a lot of times, as you know, your brain blanks. The especially the first deer or the first three or four, the amount of adrenaline and the excitement, there's a good chance that your mind is going to kind of forget everything that it's supposed to do. You know, you've been, which is why practice is so important because it needs to become second nature. But the thing that your brain will also do, if all of you've been thinking about is where you're going to hold that pin, then your brain is going to still think to put that pin where you've been burning that hole. So now it's not near as imperative for you to be able to calm yourself down and think because you're giving your brain the ability to just do what it thinks it's supposed to and then execute that shot. So for me, that's why I really try to make sure that I'm just staring at where I want to hit and burn a hole in it. Um, and then, you know, it also takes your mind off the antlers. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Once I, once I've deemed that the animal is something that I want to take, I'm not looking at the antlers at all. I'm not paying any attention to the antlers whatsoever. I'm just strictly focused on three things. And, and I'd say even the, the paying attention to their body language is more subconscious than it is conscious, but that's only because I've had the amount of experience for that to be subconscious. As a new hunter, you're going to have to be a little bit more um, keen and alert on, okay, is this deer calm? Is he alert? Is he about to chase a doe? Is he, um, is he going to get into my wind? All of those other factors, uh, which is what makes hunting so challenging because there's a lot of things that go into it and a lot of things that need to go right in order to make it happen exactly the way that we want it to. Um, so I guess when it comes to actually then taking that shot, it just depends on the angle that I have. If I have a deer that's broadside and he's 20 yards away, I'm putting my pin right on the top of his heart because even if he ducks with my setup, he's not going to be able to duck far enough to get out of the, to get his lungs out of the window. You know, he could duck 10 inches and I'm still going to be in the top of his lungs. Um, now if a deer is 35 yards and he's alert, I would tell you right now on a whitetail, I'd be really, I'd be really, really nervous about taking that shot in the first place, because if you've ever seen videos of deer dropping, the amount that a deer can drop at 35 yards is incredible. Um, but if I was going to take that shot, I would be, I'd be holding my 30, four inches above his, the bottom of his brisket is all right on the very bottom of his heart. Cause I guarantee you if that deer's alert, he's going to drop. And I, or if he does it in the rare, rare, rare instance, I'd rather miss him low. Yeah. Now, one thing that, let me just note, let me, let me say this first. What Warren's talking about here is he's shooting in anticipation for a drop. Um, that's not to be said. Don't shoot at a deer. Don't aim at a spot where you're going to miss if he doesn't drop. Um, I've had guys say, yes. well, I thought he was going to drop, so I aimed underneath him. No. Uh-uh. Because then you just completely miss the deer. Like Warren just perfectly noted, if you aim at the top of his heart, um, which we're, I'm going to put my cursor on here and have Warren show where he would aim. But um, if you aim at the top of his heart, what he's saying is if he doesn't duck, he just punches his heart out. If he does dunk, if he does duck, he just punches his lungs out. There is no, oh, I did, he didn't duck like I thought he was, so I missed. Um, you aim where you're going to kill no matter what. And if he drops, you still hit lungs. So, Warren, um, what I'm going to do, so you're aiming about here, you said? Can you see my cursor? Yeah, I can see your cursor. Nope, I'd be bringing it down. Be bringing it down. I'd come down probably, yep, and then I'd go over probably an inch to the right. I guess your right might be a little bit, yeah, about right there. That's I And I would, depending, if that deer is at 20, I would aim actually even a little bit higher than that if I'm in a tree stand because yes. now you have the you have the, um, you know, you got to keep in mind that you have angles. You always, you always just want to think of where is that arrow going to come out? Cause yep. that right there, honestly, is probably the most common hit that I get when people call us asking us to track animals. I, I crushed this deer. I double lunged him. I know that I hit him or I hit him right in the heart. I know I hit him perfect, but I only have blood for a hundred yards, but I have really good blood for a hundred yards. And then there's nothing. And is what that usually ha- means or you'll get that they have blood, good blood on one side of the arrow and not on the other side. And is what that almost always means is that that angle was a little more steep than they thought it was. And their fletchings and the back of their knock with the angle 
it looks as though it entered right in their heart. But what really happened is they basically just armpitted that deer. They went into yeah. a little tiny bit of the cavity or maybe not even the cavity, just the flesh. And they cut them on the one side and they just went right out, out the bottom of the deer, which will never kill that deer. Um, if you ever, I have seen one deer that the heart was nicked, but he never stopped bleeding. We had good blood the entire time. Um, so that the good thing with that shot is either if you hit one there and you can't find it, you didn't kill it. If you hit one there and it's in the heart, I promise you he's going to be dead in 200 yards or less. Yeah. Now there's this new rage on shooting in the vital V, um, which if you don't know what I'm talking yep. about, just Google vital V shot placement and you'll find videos. Trust me. Um, which what that means is about here. Um, and I'm not saying that's not going to work. You'll, you'll kill, you'll kill a deer if you shoot it right there. Um, because what we used to think is that this was all shoulder blade here. And so we used to think you have to come back. Um, but if you look, um, let's see if I can find like an anatomy picture. Here we go. Well, and but I couldn't look, be wrong, but let's see what you think. Are you shooting the super, are you shooting really heavy arrows and, um, like the 550 grain arrows or are you shooting lighter arrows? Um, on the edge of super heavy, I don't buy into the whole like 700, um, you know, 600, 800. No. So I I'm okay. on the verge of well, heavy. Let me, so let me ask you this. Cause I know that you know what you're looking at. Do you think that a, I think that a lot of these guys that are shooting the really heavy arrow setups that are talking about the vital V, I think that they, a lot of them think that that's, that whole thing is bone material and that that's yeah. why they have to shoot a heavy arrows because they think they're shooting through bone material, which in fact, there's, there is not bone material there unless they hit the knuckle. Right. So I don't know if, if you, if that's what you think or not, but from what I've seen, I think that a lot of those guys don't necessarily realize that that shoulder blade, like you said, it goes to the front and then it goes up. Really, if you hit the, if, if you're on flat ground and, and you're hitting the shoulder blade, you're not in a good spot. <laughs> yeah. So this yeah. right here shows that vital V. So we used to think, and some guys still do, that this is all shoulder. And people are like, oh, you hit them in the shoulder. When in all reality, it makes that V, um, just like this picture shows. And so people shoot right above the leg, um, right in that V. Now, <clears throat> again, that's going to work. I don't shoot there. Um, and I'm not saying guys that do are wrong because what they're doing is they are hitting his heart and they are hitting his lungs. I am more on the Warren side. So Warren said he was about here. Um, I tend to, what I do is I draw a line. Visually, I draw a line right behind the back of the leg, just, just straight up from behind the leg. Other guys who shoot the vital V draw it straight up from the middle of the leg. I go right behind the leg and I shoot for bottom thirds. So I shoot right about right there. And what's going to happen is, again, I'm not, I'm not bumping all the way up into the V, um, but if I aim right there, if I draw that line right behind his back leg and then the lower third, if I aim right where my cursor is right there, what's going to happen is, this picture doesn't show it. Um, I'm sure some do. But what happens is all of these arteries are coming off the back of the heart there. Um, and so if I aim right behind the back of that leg, I'm shooting all of those vital arteries coming off of the heart and I'm still punching through center mass of the lungs. Now, the reason I don't buy all the way into the vital V and punch out his heart and his lungs, because shooting here gives me more room for error because I am human. I mess up. Um, I'm going to dive into the, to the bear I shot last week and, and talk about the angles like we talked about just a minute ago, but I'm human. I mess up. So what this does is this gives me room to be more off left and right. Um, because if I'm, if I'm off to the left, then I'm still punching center heart and, and center lungs. If I'm off to the left, I'm still catching back of the lungs and liver. Um, so that's where I, I draw a line right up the back of his leg. So I'm just, I aim literally two inches from where Warren said. Well, let I just, me say this too, because in, there is certain scenarios where I would shoot, you know, the vital V, but this right here is why I would never teach that to a new hunter because if you go to what you're talking about there if you if you were to aim at that if you go right to the top of the heart dylan okay so if you were to and if you go over to the left just a hair right there so if you were to take this shot as a new hunter one i wouldn't even take that shot myself unless i'm it's at like 15 yards or something like that and i know for a fact i'm going to hit that hit that spot exactly where i want it but here's what i'm going to preface that with 
what you've done now, and this is why I wouldn't teach it to a new hunter, because now is what you've done is you've eliminated where you can only miss what two inches to the left, if yeah. that, maybe two to three inches to the left. And then we were just talking about a deer ducking. If that deer ducks, what's the first thing that's coming down? The that shoulder blade. Yes. Yeah. So now the actual bow material that is there is what you're going to hit opposed to if you're back where Dylan's talking and that deer ducks. Now what's the difference? It's still lungs. You have much, much more room for error by aiming in that, in that space than you do trying to tuck up into that corner. And let me just note, like if I shoot where I say, if I draw a line up the back of the leg, not right in the center of the leg, if I draw a line right from the back of the leg and that's where I shoot, again, all of those vital arteries come off of that heart right there. Um, and, and, and I'm still going to cut the heart. I'm still going to oh, hit yeah. the heart. Um, I'm Again, I'm not punching through the center of the heart, but I'm going to hit that heart. Um, and so that's where I aim. Again, the vital V will work. I'm not, I'm not shaming anybody who shoots there. Um, but this is just where I choose to aim. It gives me more room for error. Now, what Warren is talking about here, um, about angles. So let's see if we can find a tree stand angle picture. Um, surely there's gotta be something here, right? You would think so. Let's just Google from tree stand. Um, well, it's not uh it's not looking the best for us. Uh maybe if you uh if you go oh, to our here's Instagram. One. Here's one right here. Okay. Um it's not completely can't see the full but uh, here we go. Quartering away, not broadside, but quartering away from a tree stand. Now what Warren is talking about here is if you aim right here where we've been telling you to aim all of a sudden you're going to be too low because you're shooting from an angle. So if you come up and shoot right here, now you're going to exit where we've been telling you to shoot um, the same height and, and level. Now, what I was talking about on the bear I shot, I was shooting from a tree stand and I overcompensated for the angle. So I shot about right here. I wasn't as high as I thought I was. Um, so it didn't come out as low as I thought it would come out. I just barely clipped the top of the back lung probably. And I never found that deer. Um, so if you can imagine, um, there's a really good picture here. Um, if you can imagine, this is a target, but, um, that's a really cool target. Um, if you can imagine where the arrow is going to come out. So you can see based off of where this guy is shooting, he's shooting way high and back, but he's coming out right where we're telling you to aim right behind the back leg, bottom thirds. So he's coming out right through that heart. Um, yep. and, and so you have to picture where you're going to come out on the backside, not where you're going to aim. And that's something that's really hard to do, honestly, um, to think about where's my arrow going to come out at. But if you think about that, then it makes picking a spot up here pretty easy. Yep. Use that offside leg to help give you a reference. Absolutely. Um, now there was one more thing I wanted to cover and I don't know if I can find a picture to really to really um, at least where I want to. So that's where, too, you need to be really cautious on a deer that's quartered to you at all. From a tree stand, you have a much, much better chance of actually hitting the, the scapula or the shoulder Very blade. Hard. So wait till that deer is broadside or quartered away. Yeah. Quartering away is my favorite shot uh, by far. Um Absolutely. Just because I can really punch through everything I want to punch through. Now, this is a really good picture of what I I cognizantly do. I draw that line up the back of the leg. I would bring this down just a touch, but I draw that down. I draw it up the back of the leg, and then I pick something along the bottom thirds, and I intersect those. Again, I would bring it down just a touch, but um, that's, that's what I do visually when I aim at a deer. Um, is draw the line up the back of the leg, draw the line across the bottom of the thirds, and that's where I shoot. So um, now, Warren, how do you go into? Um, they've just had a deer in front of them. They've made a shot. They've made a good shot. Um, how do you read? Um, how do you read a deer's behavior um, after the shot? 
um, well, one, I, you hear, and I'll be curious to hear your experience on this. You'll hear the mule kick all the time that if you see one mule kick, that it, it's that deer's toast. And I honestly don't know if I've, I don't know if I've ever had one mule kick to be 100% honest. Um, so the thing that I am looking for is one, as soon as I let that arrow go, I am trying to contain my excitement and I am watching that deer and I am listening for as long as I possibly can. Hopefully what's going to happen is I'm either going to watch that deer fall or you're going to hear them crash. And when we say that you hear them crash, it's not, it, it won't be like, you know, a few leads where it just goes like you'll hear a lot of times if they're in an area where it's in timber or, um, anything that's got, you know, a decent amount of limbs around, it's going to be a loud crash, you know, when they fall or they tip over, um, look, I'm looking for, did I get a pass through? Did my arrow stay in them? Was there blood immediately? Was there not blood immediately? Did I hit where I thought I wanted to? You're going to know most of the time if you hit exactly where you wanted to, because one, very rarely will you not see blood right away. Two, if that arrow is still in them, you should be able to see that arrow for at least a short distance. And then most of my deer, they run, they are, they are full tilt out of there. And so then is what I'm looking for is I still, no matter what, unless I was able to watch them fall, um, or, you know, we're pretty fortunate that we have video. So sometimes I'm able to just go back and look at the video and, and double check the shot, but is what I would be doing no matter what is trying to give myself at least an hour to calm down. And the first thing I'm going to go do is I'm going to look at the, where I shot that animal. Um, if my arrow is there, I'm going to try to find my arrow and I'm going to look at what my arrow tells me. Is there blood uh, on my arrow? Is there a lot of blood on my arrow? Is it bubbly blood? Is it dark blood? Is there guts on my arrow? Um, what I want to get as much information as I possibly can that I'm going to see, okay, do I have blood that I can start following? And then I'm, if I have really good blood and it's got bubbles and everything is the way I want it to be, then I'm going to continue to track that animal. Uh, but no matter what, I would tell you, try to always give yourself at least 30 minutes to an hour unless you watch them fall. Now, walk me through the different bloods you're finding on arrows and what those mean. So the best blood that you can get is, um, you know, pink frothy bubbles is what that's going to mean. You know, is that you have a lung hit when you hit them in the lungs, the deer is never going very far. Um, unless you hit a one lung, if you do hit one lung, there is a chance that that deer could live for some, some period. Um, from my personal experience, probably no more than like six to eight hours, but I've also heard the rare instance of some that don't die with one lung. I wouldn't count on that though. But most of them are going to die. Um, so you have really pink frothy blood with bubbles is the best. Anytime you have bubbles, it means that there's oxygen in that blood. So that's good. That also sometimes, um, can mean that you hit an artery arteries are typically what dark red or they light red I'm trying to remember dark. your arteries, dark red on arteries. Same with liver. Um, if you have, if you have a lot of fatty tissue on your arrow and not much blood, then you were probably either back or in the gut somewhere. I've seen a few arrows, not very many, but a few that were super clean and had almost nothing on them that had just a little bit of fatty material and the deer did die, did hit guts. So I'm not sure if maybe the fat cleaned it off on the way out or what exactly happened there. But typically a gut shot arrow is going to have like a green gunky chunks on it and it will typically stink. Um, you can smell that arrow and tell that you hit guts in those instances. You want to give them as long as you can, at least 12 hours, um, and try and give them as long as you can. Um, what other hits would there be? If, high. Like I said, if you hit no man's land, high, no man's land, no man's land is not much blood at all. Um, from what I've found, you know, it's usually going to be kind of your darker muscle type blood. And there's really, you're really not going to have a lot of blood if you're, if you're high. The other one I guess I would talk to you about is if you have a, an arrow that has blood on one side of it is what that means. And that could be a high shot or it could be a low shot. You only, your arrow only entered half of the animal. What happens is that arrow was rotating and you hit that animal that only half of it. A lot of times from what I've seen, your arrows don't continue to spin when they hit an animal, they stop rotating and they're penetrating at that point. And you will get blood on one side of that arrow. If that happens, you probably hit them really low or you hit them really high and that animal's most likely not going to die. Um, shoulder, 
shoulder, same thing. You're probably not going to get a whole lot of blood if you didn't, um, unless you got, uh, you know, a ton of penetration. Um, what other hits would be pretty common? I would just encourage, I know right after you shoot, it's really hard to, to focus on anything else. Um, but I would just, my dad drilled it into my brain as a kid. If you shoot, you watch everything that deer does. When I show up, you need to be able to tell me every tree he ran by. You need to be able to tell me where he jumped, where he stopped, where he, if he paused for a minute, you need to be able to tell me all of those things. What did you hear? Um, did you hear big crashes? Did you hear, uh, I mean, everything. Um, and so as soon as you shoot, before before your nerves fly off the hinge and before you start freaking out, texting and calling people, make sure and watch everywhere that deer goes, how he acts, how he responds, um, because that can be tall tale signs. Um, I'm going to read some stuff here from Peterson's bow hunting magazine, a deer that's hitting both lungs or the heart typically runs hard and fast. Um, this is provided, um, uh, hold on long strides with the belly low to the ground. Um, they take off and just run as hard and as fast as they can. Um, let me see here. Backs leg, back legs usually one. do what? I would agree with them on that for sure. Um, classic heart shot. Um, back legs usually kick. Um, again, Warren said he's not really ever noticed that. I have a few times. Um, they're kind of like in a, a shock. They're, they're, um, they, they don't, they don't know what they're, I mean, it's, I've even noticed that for a few minutes, for a few bounds away after that, um, they'll be kicking their back legs. Um, but I've found that usually indicates heart, um, abdominal wounds. Let's see. It says, um, Anything including liver, stomach, and small intestines, or kidneys, or paunch, anything in the back of the abdomens. Um, jump or flitch before bounding away. Seldom runs hard and will usually appear uh, to lope. The distance it travels will vary, but then it'll probably take a long stop and pause. Um, once the deer stops, it could stand there for more for one or more minutes, um, head I down. Think that's absolutely true. Yeah. On, oh, hundred percent. Gut shot animal. Say so too, if you do, if you do hit an animal in the guts or, or you do see them run off and they stop and they stand there for two, three minutes and then they walk off. Even if you thought it was a good shot, you probably did not hit lungs or heart on that animal. It's right. probably in gut. So but that is really imperative to, not push that animal because if that animal is gut shot and it goes in it, they don't want to go very far. If he only goes a hundred yards and nothing else bumps him, no coyotes, dogs, anything like that. The chances of him being right there is very, very good. If yeah. you bump him, the chances of recovering him, I'd say go down a good 50 to 60%. Yeah, absolutely. Another thing, another tall tale sign is hunched over, um, which if you think about yeah. it, if your stomach hurts, you hunch over and you, you know, you try to figure out why is your stomach hurt? Why is it cramping? Why is it same with the deer? Um, which makes it look hunched over. Um, and I get that all the time. They're like, dude, he was so wobbly. He was so, I thought he was going to drop right there where he stopped. Well, really he just stopped and he was trying to figure out why is his stomach cramping? Why is it, you know, why is his stomach hurting? Um, it also says here, which I have absolutely found true. Betting down quickly is applicable to liver or stomach wound. I found that super. I mean, I've had them bed down like 40 yards and I'm like, I mistake that for them dropping. Uh, I mistake that for, Oh, they've are, they just fell. They're done. They're dead. And then I like one time just last year, I shot a deer and I'm talking like 30 yards. It laid on the ground. I'm like, Oh, it's dead. And I have my daughter with me and I'm like, let's it's right there. Let's go get out and get it. By the time we got out of the blind and got around the edge, it was gone. And she was like, what in the heck? And I'm like, crap. It wasn't, it didn't fall. It laid down, it bedded down and it just got back up because it hurt us getting out of the blind. Um, so I've definitely found that to be true. 
Um, one common hit, uh, muscular or skeletal reactions. Uh, most deer hit high will run hard and fast, uh, resembling that of a lung or um, heart shot. Um, couple differences, however, a deer with a back wound runs hard and fast, but doesn't take long strides. Um, belly doesn't appear to be low to the ground. Um, most back shot deer, um, usually stop running within a hundred yards and then they just walk off. Um, determining the difference could depend on visibility. Um, other muscular or skeletal wounds will react in much of the same way as a back shot deer. One exception is the hip shot. Um, even when a bone is missing, an arrow will inflict major damage to the ham muscle. Um, fortunately, uh, hold on. A, deer's that, a deer that flees the scene of a shot with its tail flagging may indicate a clean miss. Um, if its tail is, is warning other stuff, it's indicated a clean miss. Um, anything else you want to go over on how a deer responds to different shots? No, I think that's pretty, uh, I think they're pretty accurate there. I think I agree with you hundred percent. The number one thing that you could do is, is just watch the animal and listen, you know, as long as you can see that animal, your eyes should be glued to your binoculars. Don't yes. do not take your eyeballs off of that, off that animal. Um, you know, is listen, you want as much possible information as you can. And it is just like you said, try and take in from in what tree did he run by? What, where did he, where is the, Anytime, mark them too. If you have a last spot that you saw them, you need to find a marker there. Find a tree or a dead log or something that stands out because that may be the one the one place where you're able to find blood that gives you a direction that leads to finding that animal. 100%. So I agree with you 100% on that. It's just the information, taking as much possible information as you can right after that shot. One deer I, I found... Um, I found only because I marked exactly where he crossed the Creek, uh, didn't get a lot of good blood. Um, but I, I marked exactly where he crossed the Creek and I could see muddy tracks coming out of the Creek. And that got me back on blood. That's the only reason I ever found that deer. If I would have not known where he crossed that Creek, I never would have found that deer. Um, so absolutely mark everything you see here, where they go, where they jump, where they bound, where they stop, where they paw, everything. Um, what direction did you hear a crash in? Um, how far away do you think the crash was? Note all of those things. Um, before we move on, I got to give a shout out to my fantastic friends over at Forerunner Blinds. I have absolutely fallen in love with these blinds. Um, I'm actually going to share my screen here with you, dude. You got to see these. I've um, seen these. They're pretty cool. Have you? Yeah. Dude, they're phenomenal. Um, so, so what you've got here, is you've got a massive blind, six by six by six, um, which is just a joy to hunt out of. Uh, nobody likes being crammed in a small blind, but it's got wheels that pop up and down. So I can pull that anywhere on my farm or my lease that I want to. I can take it and then I just pop those wheels down and all of a sudden I've got a massive, comfortable blind to shoot out of. It's fantastic for shooting a bow out of because you've got these tall windows on the side. I can shoot my recurve out of this very, very easily. It is a very, very comfortable blind to shoot out of. Also very versatile. They have um, what what also has kind of just changed the way I do things. They've got their alpaca trailer system, um, which if you run an e-bike, um, what that is, I, I pull my blind on my Baku e-bike. So um, that's how I do things. But um, the alpaca trailer uh, cargo hitch is a cargo hitch that you put on your vehicle um, and it hauls your bike and they've got the same kind of wheel system. So when you get there, you take the cargo hitch off, you pop the wheels down and all of a sudden you've got a trailer for the bike you just hauled on that cargo. Um, and so, you know, I haul my bike out, take my bike off, take the cargo hitch off, pop the wheels down. And now I've got a trailer that I can pull in with me to get deer out or, you know, haul corn in or whatever I need to do. Um, and so it serves a, a, a very versatile double purpose. Guys, I would highly encourage you uh, to check out Forerunner Blinds if you're in the market for a blind. They're running a massive sale, just 925 bucks for the blind. Um, they are a Christian-owned company made right here in the great United States of America in Iowa. Um, so I would highly yeah. encourage you to check out Forerunner Blinds. They have become my favorite thing to hunt out of. Um, Warren, you found your deer. You walk up on this deer. You're freaking out. 
you're, you know, you're, oh my gosh, you're throwing bows, you're whatever you're doing. Um, walk me through your process. First off, um, this is tricky because, you know, if you're out in the middle of nowhere, you've got to do a little more work. <clears throat> I've got a lease that's literally five minutes from my, from my processor. So I don't even pull the, if I kill a deer there, I don't even pull the guts out because I can have it to him in six minutes. So I put it in the back of my truck, drive it to him. He field dresses it, does everything. However, that's not the best practice because the quicker you get the guts out of there, the better that meat's going to be. So that's just a, an, an all around general rule. The quicker you get the guts out of there, the quicker you get the meat off the bone, the better that meat is going to be. So for those dudes, let me just, let me go on a rant here real quick before we jump in. For those dudes who say you don't like deer meat, first off, quit driving around within the back of your truck for a day and a half showing your buddies. Nobody buys a beef cow, throws it in the back of their truck, drives it around for two days showing all their friends, and then expects it to be great meat. That's one of my pet peeves is like, dude, you say you don't like deer meat. I saw that deer in the back of your truck 19 hours after you shot it because you were still showing people. Then you wonder why you don't like the meat. Get it, get the guts out as quick as possible. Get it off the bone as quick as possible, whether that's taking it to a process or doing it yourself. Get it off the bone as quick as possible. Whether you're, you know, some people, well, I don't want to get into that yet. Uh, we'll get into that in a minute. So what do you do when you walk up on a deer? Well, once a, the, so once I've got a deer down and I walk up on a deer, the first thing that I do is I, uh, you know, I celebrate a little bit and I have some oh, yeah. excitement and, you know, share some high fives or whatever. After that is what I'm going to do. And this also depends on, you know, how, how hot is it? You know, if it's 30 degrees, you know, I'm not in a panic to get the guts out. I'm going to get the right. guts out still as quick as I can. But if it's 80 degrees and you did wait an hour, you need to get to processing that animal as fast as you can, because it right. doesn't take that long to spoil meat. Um, so the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to make sure that there is no arrow in there. If you, especially if you're shooting a fixed blade broadhead or something, you don't want to have a broadhead in there and then you're going to reach your hands up in there. Um, so if I can, the first thing I'm going to do is if I have some water or a small Creek bed nearby or something, I'll try to drag the deer to that just because it'll make life a lot easier. That is what I'm going to do is I'm going to put their head on an uphill side. Don't ever put their head on a downhill side or you're going to be fighting with the deer the entire time. And I guess I'm going to assume we're doing this ourselves. Okay. So the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to lay the deer on the uphill side and then I'm going to make sure that he's rolled over onto his back and he's centered so that he doesn't want to shift too much on me. After that, I'm going to take his back legs and I'm going to pro tip, pro tip. If you're by yourself, get him on his back. I take two tent stakes with me every hunt I'm ever on two tent stakes and a little bit of paracord and I can stake those tent stakes down and then I can tie them to his back legs and it'll hold him there in that perfect position for me. Great idea. That's a great idea. You should definitely take that suggestion. Um, so once I have that deer in a position that I want, I'm going to put his legs, you know, on either side of my legs to hold his legs open for me. The very first thing that I'm going to do after that is I'm going to take his testicles. And I'm going to cut his testicles off. Then is what I'm going to do is, and so, and that means everything, everything comes with that. <laughs> then once I'm going, once I've accomplished that, I'm going to start in that same spot right there at his testicles. And I'm going to make an incision with my knife into, you're going to go through two layers, basically, you know, you're going to have your hide that you're going to go through and then you're going to have um, membrane. And I guess that's probably what, maybe a quarter inch thick or so. I'm trying to explain yeah. this without visuals as, as in depth as I can here. So once I've, so I'm going to be very, very careful with that incision, because if I go too far, I'm going to puncture guts and it's going to stink. It's not the end of the world, but it is better for the meat if you can not get any guts on them. Um, and it will be much same more with enjoyable. Urine. Yeah, same thing with the urine. Try not to get any urine on, on the animal if you can. That's why I try to cut off all of that, um, which you're going to have to be careful because... Now, I don't want to speak to... Because I don't know for a fact, but I know like certain states I've elk hunted in, you have to keep connected to the the carcass uh proof of sex uh, i don't know that that's the case with any whitetails in any states but check that first um yeah check that i, I could think, be wrong well i think antlers a lot of times qualify as proof of sex i think that's why it's an gotcha. antlered tag you know or either sex tag 
Um, so maybe but, that's why it's different for elk because you're, you know, in the field, you're separating everything, you know, you're breaking it down, quartering it out. So maybe that's why, but again, just check right. that. Um, because I know like in Idaho, you have to keep the penis connected to the, to the carcass of the animal or whatever. So i uh, just check that. Yep. Check that for sure. Anyway. So once I've got that incision made, I'm going to make that incision large enough that I can fit two fingers in there. From that point, I'm going to put two fingers on either side of the of the incision, and then I'm going to have my knife with the blade away from me, and I use that as a guide. And just like a zipper, if you have a very sharp knife, you should be able to go right up to his brisket. You cut all the way up to his brisket. You'll feel that um, cartilage there, and you can cut through that a little bit if you want to. I know guys that will bring like a bone saw and cut it in half. Um, you can do that. I never really felt like I needed to do that on an elk. I would do that if I was ever, I don't, I, I hardly ever gut elk, but if I was going to gut an elk, I would do that because you won't be able to reach far enough up into their chest cavity to get the esophagus. So then from there, once I've made that incision up to that brisket, I'm actually going to come down me personally. And then I make another incision down to right at their, um, I guess it would be right in their pelvis area. And you're going to feel there's a lot of muscle and meat there of bone. You cut that and their legs are then going to, they're going to spread it wider for you. What that's doing is it's going to make it the guts much easier for you to pull out. Once I've done that, I'm going back up to the, to the sternum and the brisket there. And I'm going to take my knife and I'm going to cut right at the, right as close to the top of that hide. You're going to feel that there's, you won't be able to enter. You won't be able to put your hands up into the chest cavity because there's, material there. I'm going to cut an incision along that material so that I can get my hands up there. Once I do that, I'm going to make sure that it's big enough where I can easily fit my whole hand up in his, in the deer's chest cavity. I'm going to then reach my hand up, feel the heart. You'll be able to feel it's like a softball. And then I'm going to follow that heart, go past the heart towards his neck until I can find his esophagus. Once I've got his esophagus and his, his air pipe, then I'm going to take my knife being very careful and keeping that towards the the brisket of the deer, I'm going to go up as high as I can, and I'm going to cut that esophagus. Because what that's going to do is it immediately lets everything else go. Now, you're still going to have to cut that material. I guess, I don't know if the scientific term is membrane or what that material is, but you're going to know what I'm talking about because it's going to be the only thing holding the organs in <laughs> at that point. And so right. then I'm, I'm going to continue to pull those down from the esophagus and then just cut, and it will fall out really easy for you. Then after that, um, have you ever heard of the butt out tool? Yeah. Oh yeah. It's actually a really slick tool. It's like 15 bucks or something. I would suggest everybody go and get one. Once I've pulled all those gut out guts out of the animal, I'm going to take the butt out tool and it's basically just a tool that you screw into the anal cavity and then it, you pull that out and it will pull out that all of that material, which gives you a nice cavity to, to let all of the blood run out because you don't want blood sitting in the cavity of that animal. That's a, especially if it's warm, that's a great way to spoil the meat pretty quickly. So you want to get all of the blood out of it. If you don't have a butt out tool, then take your knife and you want to cut that anal cavity around. So you can cut, take your knife and move it through either way. You can go from outside of the animal into the animal or from the inside of the animal, outside the animal with your knife so that that blood can run through there and he can drain from there pick him up and let him drain. Make sure you've got all of the material out of his cavity and there's no blood in there and no chunks of anything. And then you're ready to put him in your truck, the dragon, or however you're going to do that. If you were going to quarter it, that would be a whole nother story. Um, I do have one tip though. I could say if you have an animal that you killed and you want to mount, actually that's not even if you want to mount one, regardless, if you kill an animal and it's really hot, and you have, let's say you're way back somewhere and you have a long drag. If you cut right from the back of where their neck connects to their skull, straight down the center of that into the meat, down the back of their neck, probably 14 inches or so, that area holds a ton of heat. You'll be able to put your hand in there when it's really cold and, and it's like, it burns like almost. an inferno. Yes. Yeah cut that and that releases a ton of the heat which helps keep that animal cooler a lot quicker that's a great tip that is a great tip i um, learned that one from a taxidermist so now for sake of for sake of 101 we're not going to talk through the the quartering process um because most guys i mean if you're white to hunting most guys um 
are going to do what Warren just said and then load it in the back of their truck and take it to a processor. If you're, you're whitetail hunting anywhere remotely close to civilization. Um, now there's been times where, you know, I'm, I'm hours from a processor and I need to get it off the meat quicker and, and or get it off the bone quicker and quarter it out and, and, and bone it out and, and all the good stuff. But most guys are then going to take it to a processor, um, which is perfectly fine. So for sake of 101, we'll dive into at another time, we'll dive into, you want to start processing your own animals. You want to start, you know, boning them out and doing all the work at your own house. Again, that's kind of a, a 201 type deal. Now, some guys dive straight into that, which is all great. I'm, you know, I'm a huge fan of that. But for sake of 101, that just got you to the point where you can put it in the back of your truck, take it to a processor. Your processor is going to be happy to receive it and, and and then call you in a week and a half and you've got all your meat. Um, now, I want to dive a little bit into like how to utilize whitetail meat. Uh, not, not a whole lot, but um, let me just say this. Anything you use beef for, you can substitute that for for deer. Um, you know, if you, if you're a taco fan, make some tacos, take some of the ground meat that your processor gives you and make some tacos. Spaghetti, um, is a, is a really good thing to use chili. Those things are, are, are really good. Of course, you know, you got to have deer jerky, so you need to tell your processor, I need some deer jerky, but, um, and sticks and sticks. Yes. Pepper Jack, pepper Jack deer sticks. I've got like nine pounds in my fridge. I'm stoked for, um, so just think about that. Anything I use beef for, I can use whitetail for. People are always Googling like whitetail recipes. Like, well, I mean, just think about beef. And, and if you use beef, you can use whitetail. Enchiladas. I mean, you can get as fancy as you want. Burgers. I mean, but just think about that as if I use beef for this, I can use whitetail for this. Um, and for the people who don't like whitetail meat, um, I understand. Like, it's a different meat. And... and no matter how much you try, some people just don't like that meat. Um, it's not that it's gamey, quote-unquote gamey. It just doesn't taste like beef. And so people say, oh, this tastes gamey. No, it tastes like deer. Uh, it's just a different type of meat. Um, and so no matter how much you try, some people just don't like deer meat. And there's been times where I've really thought, like, I can trick my wife because my wife just doesn't like deer meat. It has nothing to do with it being wild game or gamey flavor. She just doesn't like the flavor of deer. Somehow... So same way people don't like chicken or people don't like ham or people don't like turkey. I mean, it's a, it's a meat that, that some people aren't going to like the flavor of, but if you don't like the flavor of it, utilize it in ways that, you know, like chili, where you're going to have a whole bunch of other stuff in there. That's going to kind of disguise the flavor of the meat you're eating or spaghetti or, um, you know, different ways that to cover up the flavor of the meat that you don't like. Um, that's kind of my, my cooking one-on-one. I mean, I do some, some, things with specific deer uh one of my buddies um got me on the this this train of taking a whole back strap um slicing it down the middle i'm just going to give you one recipe because it's phenomenal take the whole back strap slice it down the middle um butterfly it open olive oil all over it fill that with any kind of fruits and veggies you want i'm a huge fan of pineapple so i like to put pineapple in there fold it back over um put it in some foil throw it on your smoker um it's phenomenal um, it's just a really good way to feed like a whole bunch of people and make a really good recipe and people are going to love it. I'm a huge fan of deer fajitas. I like fajitas out of deer, um, especially back straps. Um, you know, if you slice those real thin into strips and then cook them like you would cook regular beef fajitas, um, they're super good. So, um, just think about it like that. Anything I use beef for, I can use whitetail for. Yeah, deer quesadillas are awesome too. Oh. Love those. Oh, I'm hungry now. <laughs> it's only, I know, right? It's only 10 a.m., but I'm hungry. Um, so don't overcomplicate deer. And let me just say this: it's wild game. It does not have to be cooked to 200 degrees for it to be safe to eat. Um, people so often, I'm like, why don't you like deer, man? And, and then I make the mistake, and they're like, holy crap, dude, this is phenomenal. And I'm like, yeah, because I didn't burn the mess out of it. Cook it to medium. Cook it to, you know, if you don't like medium, cook it to medium uh, or medium rare. Cook it to rare. I mean, you don't have to overcook whitetail. It's going to get tough. It's going to get hard to eat. It's going to get chewy. It's not going to be good to eat. Um, so don't overcook your whitetail, and I promise you, you'll like it more. Um, if I have back straps, if I have steaks, um, all I'm doing is salt and pepper, a little bit of garlic maybe, 
and then throw them on um, on the grill. Get a nice pink in the middle. Keep them juicy. Don't dry them out. Make them bone dry and tough to chew. I promise you'll like them a lot better. You do not have to overcomplicate cooking whitetails. You do not have to cook them to you know 180 or 190 to make them safe to eat or um, just like a steak. It's going to be better, um, you know, rare to medium rare. Um, so that's what my kind of is cooking. funny is all the people that say, "Oh, wild game is gross. That's gross. I wouldn't eat that." I'm like. Have you ever drove through a pasture and look at all the cows that crap all over themselves and each other? And you think oh, yeah. you think a deer is gross? <laughs> and they're pumped full of all the hormones and all the growth yeah. hormones and all the yeah. I mean, um, now don't get me wrong, I love a big old fat ribeye, but yeah, um it's a whole lot cleaner to eat. It's a whole lot less disgusting to eat wild game, uh, because they're not pumped full of all the crap that that cows are pumped full of. Um, so don't overcomplicate it, Warren. You know, I'm a huge um, field note tip guy. Um, that I shared mine. I, I plan on sharing that um, at this time, but I, I shared mine earlier. Take two tent stakes, stake them in the ground, and you can rope off those legs and it'll keep them open for you. You don't have to fight the legs the whole time. Makes it a whole lot more enjoyable um, to get in there and, and do your work. And it doesn't keep the deer from rolling back and forth all the time. So um, that was my kind of hunting one-on-one tip. What's your hunting one-on-one tip on on shot placement, on recovering deer, on processing deer? What's your what's your one-on-one tip? Burn a hole. Shot placement, burn a hole. You focus, teach yourself to focus on nothing but where you want to hit that animal. And I promise you that you will start hitting animals way better than um, or at least establish some process. Give yourself yeah. some process that you can go through. And the one that I think is the best is one that doesn't require much brain power. If you have to go through a lot of steps. If you have to remember to draw, to anchor, to check your peep, to level your bubble, to squeeze the release, the chances of you forgetting all of that when you have a big bucket 15 yards is very, very good. If you're just focusing on burning a spot and you've been putting in the work and you're practicing all the time, chances of your brain doing what it's been taught to do and then knowing where to put the pin is much, much better. And that's why I'm a huge proponent of shooting 3D targets because it forces me to pick that spot, burn a hole in that spot, and then shoot that that 3D target where I would shoot an animal at. Um, so I'm a huge proponent of, of shooting 3D targets. Guys, before we go, quick shout out to my friends over at Minus 33. Um, if you don't use Merino wool, you're sadly mistaken. Um, especially, we were just talking about how hot it is. Um, people think, oh, Merino wool it's for super cold weather. Absolutely not. Um, I actually turn to Merino when it's hot, maybe even more so than when it's cold because it'll suck the moisture away from my body. Um, it, it's, it's naturally odor resistant. It's naturally antibacterial. Um, it's moisture wicking. So it'll pull that moisture away from my body. It'll keep me cool. Obviously it's super, super light Merino. So I'm a huge fan of Merino wool and minus 33 does it and does it really stinking well. Um, so if you haven't tried Merino wool, I would highly encourage you to. And if you're in the market for some new Merino wool, I would highly encourage you to look at minus 33. Um, Warren, thank you so much for coming on guys. Seasons are upon us. So as always, I want to share in your success, make sure and send me those photos. Um, you can, you can email me at the hunting one podcast at gmail.com. I would love to see your, your harvest photos. And I would love to share in your success with you. But guys, nonetheless, get out there and enjoy whitetail hunting this season. And uh, go back and listen to to the tactics episode because um, it will help you get to the point where me and Warren ha have been talking about shot placement and, and, and everything afterwards. So um, guys, thank you for listening. Y'all have a great week.